My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler. I'm the co-host of this show and joined, as always, by my lovely, handsome, extremely talented co-host, Mr. Eric Vespi. Eric, say hi to the people. Hi, people. How are I'm you doing talented tonight, Eric? I'm great. Yes. Okay. Great. Well, don't don't, How are get you? Big, don't get a big head about it. Uh, I'm 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 doing fantastic, and I'm very excited about the show we have today. Uh, our guest is one of my favorite people in the world. Period. She is the co-host of the Reading Glasses podcast, the author of the upcoming book Girly Drinks, and and Eric, listen listen up here because this is where. Uh, me and our guest stars really align. Uh, she is the best-selling and award-winning author of The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Miss Mallory O'Mara. Mallory, how are you doing tonight? You know, I am doing okay. I'm really regretting not grabbing a beer for this show, but I am doing wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on. Do you want to send somebody to get you a beer? Like Postmates? <laughs> well, no. I mean, you don't have any in the house? No. What? Okay, well, you I, just that's straight one up. One of the drawbacks of having a cat is I can't train them to bring me things. Oh, I thought you meant like you couldn't have beer in the house with a cat. Which would not <laughs> My make... cats are, are recovering alcoholics. I can't have yeah. anything in the house. My cats are Mormon and it just doesn't fly. Mallory, how are you doing tonight? I am doing about as well as can be expected. Uh, we're deep into quarantine here, uh, but mm-hmm. I'm a introvert who works from home, so I'm doing mostly okay. <laughs> Uh, Mallory, I guess we should uh, we should talk very briefly about uh, how you and I came to know each other, and that's entirely through uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. Yeah, you are probably the only other person I know who likes creature from the Black Lagoon as much as I do, and Swiss Correct. Army Man. Oh, that's true. Yes. I can't remember our, if that's how we became friends on Twitter or not. If it's because we both love Swiss Army Man or we're both obsessed with creature. I think it was creature. I think it was creature, but uh, Swiss Army Man sort of built up you know, the, the friendship. And then, uh, about a year or two ago, whenever it was, I, I have no concept of time anymore. We had Mallory come in on her book tour and do a specialty screening of creature from the black lagoon here in Austin, Texas. And it was fucking awesome. That was one of the, that was the, one of the best nights of, of my year that, that year. And it was we're, definitely we're, one of my best book tour stops. It was a blast. Oh, it was so good. Wait, um, you you guys actually got in a room with other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's that like? Uh, I still dream it, about it, honestly. It's weird now, isn't it? Thinking about breathing all that air, being so close to people, sharing armrests, people bringing you weird fan art. It's just, it's just a lot. I do get a lot of weird fan art. I do get a lot of good fan art, though. <laughs> How much fan art do you have sitting around right now? I have I, I actually have several boxes of it. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's awesome. More than you could ever ever really need or use. If I hopefully when I buy a house someday, I will definitely have a, a space that's all dedicated to to creature fan art. Yeah, you give a room to it. Mallory, you I, I don't know if you've you've listened to the podcast yet, but um we I have. typically Okay, excellent. Uh, that will help you. Uh, we we typically start off by asking our guests what their their king origin story is. 
So can you talk to us a little bit about how you how you came to Stephen King? It's funny. <laughs> I honestly feel like when you're a horror fan, you almost find out about Stephen King through osmosis. Like I don't remember a time when I wasn't aware of Stephen King. I feel like Stephen King is is so many of our intros. I mean, my my intro to horror in general was finding my mother's copy of the Creepshow comic. Because uh, when Creepshow came out, they uh, gave out, uh, and I, I, don't, I forget how much of the theatrical run got this, but there was a comic book that was all of Creepshow. And I w- remember reading The Crate and just completely falling in love. And... And then it was like, oh, Stephen King, he's like the uh, the Walmart greeter of horror, you know, and <laughs> I thought, oh, that's wow. the best. I'm sorry, that's the best <laughs> King description. We, we've heard uh, Bruce Springsteen, we've heard Norman Rockwell, Norman Bakes. Now he's a Walmart greeter. No, I think that's ascribing too much loftiness. And I think the the joy and the appeal and the genius of Stephen King is that he is just like a Walmart greeter, you know, he's there in his ba- his dad jeans and his his white sneakers, and he's just every man, like just could be your dad, could be your uncle, and he's there to, to welcome you in. And when I found, I was like, okay, wow, okay, this guy's a writer. I went to the library, and I I think the first thing I checked out when I was very very young was Salem's Lot, and I was too young, I like single digits was should not have been reading any Stephen King. Uh, and it was all it, like it was bound in black. The the copy that I had was a library copy, so it didn't have the book cover. It was just like the naked hardback, and it was black. And I was like, oh shit, you know, I'm reading a horror book now. And you just fell in love. I mean, for me especially, I grew up in New England, so I just sort of assumed all horror took place here. I was very very spoiled in that way. I was just like, oh yeah, horror, you know. Lovecraft, Stephen King, all this horror stuff is just here. Like this is this is what life is, right? And I went from there. I just I me and my my partner moved recently. We're both huge horror fans, and we realized that I think when you're a horror fan, like Stephen King books just start showing up in your home, even if you don't buy them. Just like all all uh, hard hard covers and paperbacks. You're just like, how did we get all these fucking Stephen King books? They just appear there. Oh, I assume it's the same yeah. with you two. All of a sudden, you're looking around at your books. And you're like. When did I buy these, Steve? I think they just sort of, you know, start appearing in your home. They just start pop, like. Yeah, kind of like lighters. <laughs> and well, yeah, they're like, you know, critters. They just start breeding on your bookshelves. And I'm not complaining about it. But Salem's Lot was the first one? Salem's Lot was the first one. And I just fell in love. I almost I almost don't remember because he was such a, he was so omnipresent. And he's touched the world of horror so tremendously that it's you can't even imagine like if you took out Stephen King from the world of horror in the film world or in the literary world like it would be a fundamentally different genre he's part of the scaffolding so it's difficult for me to sort of parse it out I mean I guess the the, that uh comic book the crate was really my first uh introduction but it had to be Salem's Lot and I just completely fell head over heels and luckily there's so much to read that you almost take advantage of it you know because you'll never run out of stephen king books right when uh the dark tower came out i went up to um maine like sony flew some of us up to maine for uh like a whole day that was like built around this you know like a dark tower event you telling me the story once yeah yeah like it was it was fucking wild but it, it the the day uh, at one point took us to what was essentially like a Stephen King bookstore slash museum in Bangor. 
I mean, any uh, used bookstore is essentially a Stephen King bookstore. This one was like completely dedicated to it. And then I found out like a couple of years later, like that whole place just got like flooded and ruined or something, which is heartbreaking because they had shit in that location that I've never seen in my life before. Um, but notable to this conversation is that sitting out in front of that uh, place was uh, a reproduction of the crate from from Creepshow. Uh, and I saw it coming from like 50 feet away and reacted as though I'd seen, you know, a celebrity. It was it was so fucking exciting. That's amazing. Uh, um, well, that, that was that's the experience of walking around Banger anyway. Banga. 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 Did I did I fuck it up? I don't know. Banga. <laughs> um, I did my pilgrimage up there. Uh, I went on a set visit in Boston and I decided, sorry, Baston. And I, <laughs> and I went to um, like, I did my set visit funnily enough for a movie that's still not out yet. The new mutants. And, <laughs> and, and it still <laughs> won't be out when this podcast airs. Whenever that is. It'll be yep. 2040 and that shit is not out. <laughs> Uh, but like I knew I was going there and I'm like, you know what? I'm, I've always wanted to do it. It was towards the end of summer. It was almost, it was like end of summer, beginning of fall. I'm like I'm going to do this. And, and I just had uh, my flight back like three days after all my obligations in Boston were done. And I just drove up to Maine and I did that whole thing. And, you know, I, I got into town like late afternoon. I went to Stephen King's house. I saw the Paul Bunyan statue. Like I went and I sat in, in front of the, the standpipe. Yes. And, yeah. and just like, they had like a little bench there next, right next to the bird feeder that, you know, that he writes about in it. And I just like sat down and I just absorbed it. And it seemed like everywhere you turn in that town, there's, you know, either a feel or, uh, you know, some sort of tone that you pull from his his books or like a, literally a giant Paul Bunyan statue that you, you know, that you've imagined since you were 12 years old. Like maybe two miles from that standpipe is the sewer grate that he used to walk by that inspired the opening scene of It. That shit is. Well, it doesn't look anything like. I thought it would look like um, it's more of a great versus like a like I thought it would. I always, you know, like it's in the in the movie. It's like a, a curbside thing, you know? Yeah. And in the miniseries, too, that's probably why it's in your mind. Yeah. That, you know what, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's you know what I grew really up. Funny with. is that as a, I grew up in, in Massachusetts and I've never been I've never done that tour. I've never looked oh, around man. there. I, th- I think so much shit. I well, but when you grow up, I grew up in um, northeastern Massachusetts, and I never felt the need to because so much of what he writes about, so much of his like created Stephen King universe in Maine is ubiquitous to a bunch of New England states. So I never felt the need to like go up there and absorb it because it was sort of all around me. And I think right, that, right. You know, when you live in New York, you never go see the Statue of Liberty. You only like if someone had come to visit me in Massachusetts, which why would anyone fucking do that? Uh, I would have like, oh, let's go in the Stephen King tour but that never happened it just never occurred to me to go make a pilgrimage it's it's worth going up there for i think and i did uh a couple years ago my wife and i went up there started way up north and then drove down to dc and hit like a number of horror hot spots on the way like so we went to lovecraft's grave and when we went to dc we went to the exorcist stairs and and all that shit we saw a bunch of stuff we didn't go as far north as maine on that trip I had just been there like, you know, six months before, but you're like, that's I would absolutely go back. I would, no, I, I enjoyed it. It's very quaint and it was really cool seeing all the stuff. Uh, I, w- I would do it again, honestly. 
but I would recommend that for for well, anyone we, that that enjoys King. I was going to say we have to do some sort of live show up there at some point, whether this thing ever makes money or not, and we can afford to do it. You know, we just need to do it to do it. You know, I think that we could uh, we could find some you know small place it's probably you know they like i don't know hung witches in or something and uh yeah we went to we went to all of massachusetts it's just like spooky graveyards dead witches and like stephen king Uh, uh, on my road trip up to uh uh, bangor i um i saw for brunch in salem and i did the whole like kind of you know witch museum and and all that stuff i was hitting all the touristy hotspots Okay, did you go to the witch museum where you sit in the center of the room and there's like dioramas? Yep. All yeah, hell yeah. That all shit that corny is so ass weird. Shit. They're actually oh, redoing just... it uh, because somebody oh, was like, Christ. wow, this is some problematic ass shit. And now they're, they, they actually <laughs> hired like a bunch of millennials to make it less shitty. Um, hopefully that will be something that's happening. So so all the, witching, the, the witches being tortured are going to be like they're taking their tablets away or like what's... <laughs> I think they're just trying to make it less racist. Yeah, it's pretty racist. It's like, I remember sitting there and looking around and it was like, you know, the light comes on and it shows you like one room after another. And, you know, uh, again, it was like sort of one vaguely racist diorama after another. Yeah, Massachusetts uh, is good for that shit. No, I hadn't heard that. (laughs) (laughs) And certainly not Boston. Massachusetts, where it's cool if you're gay, just not if you're black. <laughs> Yikes. Um, so, Mallory, let's talk about the novel slash adaptation you you have brought to the show today. What, what did you want to talk about? I am very excited that I got my second pick, which was Pet Cemetery. What was your first pick? It was Silver Bullet. Oh, Okay. But I will okay, acquiesce. Yeah. It was a great episode. But I am very, very excited to talk about Pet Cemetery. Uh, again, takes place in Maine. But it also, I mean, the film is one of on, the only two that have been directed by a woman of all the Stephen King adaptations of like the 50 True. there are. Yeah, that's about a, a representative of Hollywood on on the whole, I think. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that Stephen <laughs> King is, is so influential and is such a huge chunk of the horror world that you can just look at Stephen King as like a great little microcosm. Yep. Uh, I've been combing through a bunch of old Stephen King interviews. Um, and in our Shining episode, like I, I pulled a few of those uh, quotes out. But I, I was actually really interested in Pet Cemetery because you know what's fascinating is the lore behind the book is it's almost unlivable like you because this is the book that scared Stephen King right this is the one that he he refused to publish because he thought it went too far that that's the that's like the legend of the book and then the book comes out and you know is easily one of his most effective um and affecting uh stories uh but what's really interesting about it is like all that stuff is true. It's not something that like they built up whenever he finally published it. Cause I was finding interviews from like just after the shining where he was talking about how, you know, how a uh, Tabitha King is always his first reader, right? His wife is always the first one to read it. And she's the one that like plucked Carrie out of the trash can and like super respond, you know, responsible for King being the, the cultural icon he is. And 
you know, crazy supportive and all that stuff. And she's the one who got two thirds of the way through pet cemetery and was just like, no, you need to put this on the shelf. You can't release this. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, it's crazy. Uh, But then when you actually read the book, it's, you see why that is. But what's really interesting is that even with all that stuff, he was kind of pressed to talk about like the, the most disturbing scene for him and what was, uh, it, it might not be a scene that you would think because you would imagine, you know, and of course we're going to be talking about spoilers here. By the time you're you're listening to this episode, you should realize that we're, <laughs> we don't give a shit and they're going to ruin whatever it is. So if you haven't read it, we're going to offer the spoil Pet Cemetery. I mean, yeah, everyone knows. The, yeah, it is kind the, of the one big moment. Yeah, but you would think it would be that. But like the, you know, Gage getting hit, hit in the road, you would think that would be uh, uh, the. Yeah, the <laughs> Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Do, we, do you have a sound effect? Well, no, I. but I want to bring this to a screeching halt right now. Uh, apologies Zing. to Gage Creed. Yeah. Oh, um, damn. There is something that we've been wanting to introduce to the King cast uh, for a minute, and we have failed to do so. Mm. Um, Eric, I think you know what I'm talking about, and it's don't do it yet, but it's the noise. Yeah. Oh, jeez. So uh, I think we should I, I think we should have that on standby. OK, for the discussion of of Gage Creed's demise. Just in OK. 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 I'm sorry. Uh, to I'll, save, I'll, save it. I'll save it. I'll save I, it I, I just don't want to lose that moment. All right. Go ahead. Um, OK. So the scene in question uh, that was super effective uh, for him and the thing that like really creeped him out was exhuming the body of of Gage Creed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and, a pretty intense re- scene. It, it's it it reads intensely, and in the way he described it, he, is he was saying that it was scary to him because the words were flowing so quickly that he described his typewriter as like almost being on an automatic typing, you know, setting and he was saying that the scene was so vivid in his mind, he could smell the gases he's describing coming out of the child's body and like all this stuff. And it like, it rattled him. That scene rattled him. And I think that that scene almost by itself is uh, one of the reasons why he held off on publishing it for so long. Well, and just like a lot of his other books, I mean, the shining in particular, uh, this book mirrored so much of his own life. You know, he was inspired to write this when he was living in Maine near a road that a lot of big trucks went down. And, you know, there's a lot of things there's, you know, that story about their kid's cat getting hit by the truck. And that's what inspired this story. I mean, it was so, this story could have happened to Stephen King minus all of the supernatural stuff. You know, I'm sure this probably hit closer to home than almost anything he had ever written being the famous horror guy he's always asked like what scares him you know and when he's not giving a joke answer his serious answer is always the death of one of my kids he's like you know seriously i can joke about the you know the creature living under my bed and having my foot you know hanging out the covers or whatever you know but he's like for for real the real terror is you know as a parent losing a child um so this is for sure you're right you know as a book this is him tackling his personal greatest fears you know more than anything he had done before i think up to this uh, point are y'all more frightened or disturbed by like a horror novel or or even a movie where a kid gets injured versus an adult uh it depends on the circumstances because Mo- none I of mean, us have kids right yeah so- it's hard for me to say i don't have children um 
I don't. I have two cats, and I definitely have a hard time watching anything. I mean, yeah, I have a I have a really hard time with this because I'm like, oh god, don't. Why would you ever let your fucking cats outside? What are you doing? But it's it's hard. I think this is a tough one for non parents to discuss, but because it is such a big aspect of of the novel. Um, right. But I, it, you know, a, a lot of the fear we have for other characters has to do with their the character's own helplessness. So I think with children, mm-hmm. it's so much easier to be afraid for them. You know, that's why in so many slashers, it, it can veer so quickly into comedy because a lot of the teenagers uh, are being painted as people you almost want to die. Uh, whether that's right or wrong, that's sort of like there's a lot. There's a veneer of like, oh, they deserved it because they went into the woods and and drank. You can, like that isn't there with children, so the it's automatically heightened when you're writing about a kid. Yeah, well, and they're also more just plainly more vulnerable. You know, it's like, are are you more scared about? you know, this Navy SEAL who's had all this training, you know, going in and facing a monster, or are you more scared, you know, for a 90 year old, you know, grandma, you know, baking pies. It's like, there, there is a certain, uh, you know, and facing a monster, probably a pie monster. Um, but, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but it, it, it's, it's a vulnerability thing. And in pet cemetery in particular, I, you know, you're right. I don't have kids. I have uh, a pair of nephews that I, yeah, you're I very love like they, them. Yeah, that I love like my kids and and I can tell you just even that and I and I say this realizing and recognizing 100% it's still not the same as having your own children. But like after that, like I, I think I remember I saw a documentary on the Sandy Hook uh, shooting um, and I was, you know, of course, deeply affected by that whenever whenever it uh, the news was on and you know and I was crying watching the news and all that but when I was watching the documentary something really crazy happened and I kept projecting my nephews onto the faces of of you know these you know these kids as their their life as stories are being told by their their parents and stuff and I kept like in my I found in the theater my mind was wandering to like what would happen if you know right after the screening I got a phone call saying there was a shooting at their school what would I do like how would I feel? And in like, it, it's we it, it's it's just the difference between psychologically understanding something and having, you know, a base a basic human empathy to it, and then having a real connection to something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can see why this is a a story that really you know fucked with King and and also really disturbed his wife. You know because that's something that they share. You know is there? You know I'm sure she was projecting onto this, uh, you know, what she was reading and telling him to shelve it. She was projecting, you know, her own, you know, fear of, of losing uh, their kids. Well, that's what's so interesting and I think makes Pet Cemetery really stand out among King's work is that so much of his, so many of his novels deal with fighting against evil, whether it's internal or an external thing, whether it's a monster or so- something inside your mind. But what's interesting about Pet Cemetery is that it's about not fighting against something all of pet cemetery is about accepting death versus fighting it and the bad things that can happen when you fight it and that you know that's why i mean this is it's a bummer of a fucking book there is no triumphant ending here there is no you know great victory there's no oh we fucking beat this thing yeah you know like in in it there's just not none of that because the the only thing you can do with death is accept it Yep, and when you don't, very bad things happen. Uh, yeah. I had never um, really thought about it from that angle before. That's that's interesting. That's why you bring guests. I don't have anything to add to it. I'm just <laughs> yeah, yeah. But. 
folks, this well, what- is why we get Mallory Amira on the show. Like, oh, that's yeah. why Lewis is such an interesting character, and especially to read now when we're in this pandemic and to think about as an avatar for Stephen King, because he's a doctor and, and trained to deal with death. Uh, but things, com- everything co- completely changes when it becomes personal to him. And we're seeing all kinds of stories like that in the news, you know, right. that doctor in the UK who was, who was really stringent about social dis- distancing, except when it came to his own mistress, you know, it, when something touches you personally, all of a sudden the rules change and everything that you have been taught to, to think and to feel and to do goes completely out the fucking window. And you can see where Stephen King has been a horror author for years and years and years and thought about the most terrifying things you could imagine but when it comes to the death of a child all of a sudden he's like oh maybe i would try to resurrect him and deal with this weird little zombie body like okay i like i i might do that like that's the horrifying thing when you're reading pet cemeteries you're like man i might do that i like even now recording this podcast knowing what happened with church if something happened to one of my cats and i was grieving i would be like well maybe i'll give it a shot yeah, he was still kind of there, right? Well, I that's mean, what's so funny is they're like, oh, well, now he's the evil church, so he's like killing shit and being evil. I was like, so he's just a cat. He's a cat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god, he killed a bird. <laughs> like, I don't think I don't. He's just what, that's what cats do. <laughs> I don't think I would do it. Like, um, I know. You say that I, I know now. Yeah, no, yeah, but Lewis Creed didn't think he would do any of that stuff either. I and just what happened to him. Well, I'll tell you what. Like, uh, sort of building off something Mal said a minute ago. Like, my my dogs are my kids, and I have a my my smallest dog, and the dog I've had the longest is a little uh, Chihuahua mix named named Conan. And I love Conan more than I have ever loved anything on the face of this planet. Like, I would take a bullet in the face for that dog right now. I think about what's going to happen when Conan dies all the time. And I get really fucking upset about it every time I do. This is another thing that keeps me up at night. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen uh, in the audience, I stay awake at night a lot (laughs) thinking of horrible things. But I'm so scared of when that moment comes and how utterly broken I'm going to be. And I know it's an eventuality. I know what's going to happen. I don't honestly believe that there's anything within me that if I could extend it beyond that point that I would do it. I think that you truly are Judd Crandall. Well, people often tell me I look like Fred Gwynn. So, so (laughs) but But only uh, after he runs into zombie. uh, Well, I have slashed Achilles uh, tendons. That's why they say it's all those overalls you wear, Scott. Let's be real. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you, madam? But I don't, I don't, I don't think I would, I don't think I would take that deal at all. I, I think I would be too weirded out by it. And even though, you know, Lewis doesn't know what's going to come back exactly. He, you have to assume, right, that it's going to come back in some other form. It's not going to be exactly the same. Right. Uh, Or that's that's how I would be thinking of it. That's actually why I think Judd no. is, to me, the most interesting character in in this entire story is because he is the one who did resist. You know, he didn't he he, he doesn't bury any, you know, his his family members in the cemetery, but he's still fucking curious about it. And he still leads Lewis to do it. And it's, it's right. just that perfect example of even when you can be good and can resist things. 
you still have that ultimate curiosity, you know, and you kind of, you, there's a lot of talk in the, in the, in the book about how, you know, he believes that this, you know, the pet cemetery is starting to, you know, work of its own accord and it has its own, own desires, but Judd sure is shit helping it along, even though he knows that it's evil. Right. Without Judd, like none, none of that happens. If Lewis can, you know, lose his, his kid, you know, Ellie can lose her cat, all that could, could have happened, but without Judd, you know, showing them the way to the, uh, the old burial ground, that temptation's off the plate. Right. Uh, and and you're right. It's fascinating because there is something in there where you can almost read that Judd is willing to gamble with somebody else's grief and yes. not his own. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Nobody would have been happier, you know, if Gage had come back and been just his normal self. Maybe just needs a, you know, a few baths or whatever than, than <laughs> Judd. Um, you know, but uh, he he knew better. But you're right. There is a little bit of optimism there that maybe this time it'll be different. But I'm not going to risk my you know my family to find out. And um, this is one of the this is one of the more uh, faithful Stephen King adaptations. Do you all agree? Oh with yeah. That? Well, I mean, he wrote the script, so I hope so. <laughs> it's it's on multiple levels, though. I mean, th- what's really incredible to me about the the movie and what's really held up about it um, is the fact that it's one of the few that have actually you know shot in Maine. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it, as ridiculous as uh, uh, Fred Gwynn's accent is, uh, and as parodied as it's been, that's you know that's. It's, it's kind of that's right. Yeah, it, it's on point, and it's it's uh, it's cartoonish, but so is a lot of that. You know, a lot of the accents up there, and honestly, oh, for sure, every time I always think it's like even me. Like I grew up in New England, I've lived in Los Angeles for a number of years, and I always like make fun of it. And then as soon, my boyfriend laughs constantly whenever I'm on the phone with my grandfather. I slip right back into it, and I don't even notice it, and I don't even really realize until I get off the phone, and my boyfriend's just just cracking up at me in that uh my pilgrimage uh up to bangor because it's new england you know i went through about 47 toll you know stations to to get up there you know even 93 hour drive and, um, uh, and like no shit the second i hit like the main state line the first toll after that the guy you know who took my toll money sounded like judd crandall and he 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 didn't give me an aya but it was it wasn't that far off welcome and to wisha and i saw 25 please yeah. <laughs> it's worcester thank you very much yeah. uh you know but it gave me the biggest smile because that's kind of what i you know obviously associate you know, on the written page with King and I was in King country legit. And it, I don't know, it was almost like, uh, you know, the matrix was, was giving me the experience I actually, you know, I really wanted. Um, Part of me wonders if Stephen King was so insistent on being so involved with this, you know, he was insistent on it being in Maine and was really involved with Mary Lambert in the filming of this, that because it, it, it was such a scary book to him and because it's uh, like, it's such a, all, I mean, all of horror is a serious subject, but it's such a, such, such a serious, sad subject that he wanted to deal with it with as much gravitas as he could. And like, all right, well, I have to make this as faithful as I can. I have to really take this seriously. Yeah, you want to hear something really bonkers is I when I rewatched the movie uh, a few months back, um, I, I have these new uh, cats They're They're they've only been with me for now a little over a year. They're a little over a year old. And one of them jumped into my lap 
right at the beginning of Pet Cemetery, and no shit, like watched the entire movie, like sat facing the screen, watched the entire movie and was like paying attention. Like when things would happen, like something would move from the left side of the screen to the right side, the cat's head would turn and follow the action. Right. And he's I'm- like, dad, if you ever, ever <laughs> fucking think about burying me in a spooky old burial ground, I will bite, bite your head off when I come back. And he's never, he's never done that with any movie before or since, but he watched the whole fucking thing and 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 he was and i'm like this is ridiculous yeah and i i took i like i took like a series of pictures and i have this perfect one where it's like right during that like the most famous shot of the movie with where's that like close you know the medium close-up of the evil church with the glowing eyes as he's hissing and i have like this perfect shot of like his ears or whatever from between his ears like looking at that thing i'll I'll post it whenever whenever this happens but like i was i wonder that like a little bit if if uh like the sound design put in some sort of like sound that that makes cats pay attention or something like if there's some like <laughs> they put cat propaganda in there <laughs> if stanley kubrick directed this movie that's for sure something he would have done i think i'm i'm sort of bris- uh, bristling at something you've just said and that's the idea are that your ears the- back scott well, yes. Uh, the idea that the cat hissing is the most iconic shot from this movie. I think the most iconic shot from the movie is um, the shoe. When it's when well, <laughs> well, there's actually now I'm I'm undermining my own point. I was there's two iconic shots from this movie uh, that I think of before anything else, and one of them is Judd getting his Achilles tendon slashed right a gauge later in the movie, which is. Still one of the most gruesome things I've ever seen, but also, and Eric, get ready. It's the point where uh, Gage Creed wanders out into the road and then he looks up and what does he see? A truck. (laughs) There it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This uh, this, uh, software that, that we use to record all this stuff for some reason has built in a sound effects bar that we've never used incredible um, we actually also use this uh for our own podcast and it's a literary podcast so we have no fucking reason to ever use any sound effects but we've thought about it but if you but if you were running a stephen king podcast and you were doing an episode on pet cemetery and a toddler went out in the middle of the highway and then turned around and saw a truck what would happen amazing <laughs> love it it's funny that you say that is the most iconic thing. And, you know, earlier we were talking about spoilers because whether you're watching that cemetery as a film or you're reading it like from fucking go, you know, someone's going to get hit by a truck. You just know it. Like yeah. the, the beginning of the film is essentially someone holding up a neon sign that says someone's getting hit by a fucking truck. You know, like it, the whole thing. Mary Lambert is not subtle about it. No, there, this is not a subtle book. You know that something bad is going to happen. The whole thing is a giant flashing, some shit's going down sign. And that's what's fascinating about it is that when, when I'm talking about books is, you know, whodunits, but I, I'm actually more of a fan of why whodunits when mm. you already know something has happened, but you want to know why. And you know that someone's going to fucking die by getting hit by a truck on this road, but you're more interested in seeing how they deal with it. Because, I mean, this whole, the film or the book, this whole story is about grief and how we deal with grief and the absolutely bonkers shit that we do when we're grieving. And it, so it's a very interesting film that you can't, 
really spoil. I mean, just if you even look at any kind of imagery, posters, anything, you're like, you know that that this adorable kid is going to fucking die. <laughs> yeah, Unless you're right. watching the remake. Oh. Well, that's another episode. It sure we'll is. Deal with that not later. this one. <laughs> I watched this when I was you know, very young, of course, because I was by the time this came out, I, I wasn't old enough and my parents wouldn't have taken me to see this in the theater. So I'm sure I saw it on on cable or VHS for the first time. Um, but I must have been 10, 11 ish, 9, 10, 11 ish when I saw it. And with all the crazy stuff in the movie, of course, there's two things that that stood out. Of course, Zelda and we'll get to Zelda in a second was the <laughs> ultimate freak out. Um, but Yikes. but like right right at the top, uh, uh, how they handle Pascal. He's one of my favorite things in the book and in the uh, and in the movie. I just love the whole concept of this. The angel on Lewis Creed's shoulder is this it's straight fun- out of American Werewolf in London. Totally, yeah, but it's but even there, out. like he's you know uh, uh, Griffin Dunn's trying to get his friend to kill himself, right? He's trying to push him into suicide, right? And and this all this guy wants is is to you know this doctor tried to help me stay alive, so I'm going to try to help him avoid this tragedy in his family, and he can't. Um, and but I, I but I just love the fact that he the angel on his shoulder is like the most disturbing fucked up accident victim, you know, that's just with him the whole time trying to get him to do the right thing. He looks like massive head wound, Harry yep. you, from uh, like old school Saturday night live. I think Dana Carvey played that. Yep. Yep. Oh my God. Yeah. That's what he looks like in running shorts, massive headroom, headroom, Ma- Max headroom. He's Max. Headroom. <laughs> headroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Matt Frewer. Oh, that's the kind of stuff that I actually think makes this one of the more successful Stephen King adaptations. I mean, Stephen King is sort of famously difficult to adapt because, you know, the the genius of Stephen King is his characterization, right? He takes this, there's a a pizza delivery girl and she's walking down the sidewalk towards a house and he's going to spend the next 100 pages telling you the underwear she's wearing, the things that she had for for breakfast, the fight she's having with her mom. And by the time she gets to that door, you know everything about that girl and you are ready to root for her. He almost forces you to care about a character because he's so masterful at at characterization, but you don't have that kind of time in a film. And it's very, very difficult to get across that level of characterization in an hour and a half or two hours. Uh, but grief is so universal in that it, it makes you care about these characters immediately. And it doesn't, uh, it, it's something that we, like we were talking about earlier, we all think about and we're all afraid of. And it's, it's such a uniting emotion that this film, I think really strikes hard and, and sticks with people. And I think the, the feeling of it, the tone of the book is v- adapted very, very well into the movie. A hundred percent. I actually had that in my notes is like, the, you're right. There's two signs of a successful Stephen King adaptation. It's tone and character. If you can capture both of those things, you have like a top 10% movie just by itself. Right. Um, and this one in particular, the tone you get while watching the movie is pretty much the tone you get while watching or reading the book. It, it's like oh, you right. get that same sense of impending dread. It's very and, butthole clenchy. Uh, yeah, for sure. It, it is it's super like butthole clenchy. Sickness. It's got, it's got like a diseased feel to well, it. Well, it, it, there's a doomed 
feeling to it. There's a yeah. doomed feeling to the book. There's a doomed feeling to the movie. This yeah, is a it's tragedy. Not a and, beach read like this yeah, is a you, book that you don't enjoy reading. Yeah, you know it's a tragedy when you're getting into it. Even if you had never heard of it before, it's clear from the writing. It's clear from, uh, you know the 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 uh cinematography and of the movie it's clear from the score which i think is one of the most underrated like horror scores of all time elliot goldenthal's score here it is so like instantly creepy you start playing it and it's you know the that great horror score trick that poltergeist used of having like you know singing kids you know for it just fits the movie so well uh since you bring up poltergeist i'll i'll bring this up what do you think about the fact that Poltergeist, which was like, what, 82? Correct. The whole concept of Poltergeist is that this development has been been built on an Indian burial ground. Mm -hmm. King wrote this, uh, well, it was published in 83, but obviously it was written before that. What do you make of the fact that these two sort of iconic pieces of, of horror both deal with America's past in a way? with uh, like an Indian burial ground thing. Well, I, I have a couple of things to say to that real quick, is that the first Poltergeist doesn't mention Indian burial ground at all. That's, all the, that's all the second movie, 100% oh, the second real? movie. Everything in the the first one is all about uh, is all about the uh, the cemetery that was that was there that they relocated uh, the regular I, I, I cemetery. I don't remember it at all. But yeah, but I, I, I it, it's to, it's totally uh, you're not alone. That happens all the time. But what's also really interesting, um, and I if I could interview you know either one of these two men again, I would bring this up. But Steven Spielberg wrote Poltergeist, uh, and that is one of the three credited scripts he wrote close encounters and ai being the other two um and all three of those movies i i adore and i think they're great in what they do but i read in an old old like back issue of fango uh, a story about spielberg approaching stephen king to write uh, a haunted house movie and stephen king turned him down and that turned into Spielberg what? writing writing poltergeist so spielberg actually approached king to write poltergeist why did he turn him down I don't at that point I don't think he would written much. I think maybe he was working on Creep Show or something. He I, I think it was a time thing. Um you but imagine that's why having I, having a big enough fucking dick in this industry that you could turn down Steven Spielberg. Uh, he went to one raging cokehead and was like and he was like, No. And then he goes to Toby Hooper and he's like, I can do that shit. <laughs> kind of uh, I do have a little bit of a historical context for this. And if you if if listeners are interested in learning more about the the historical context of the time and place that Stephen King wrote Pet Cemetery, Grady Hendrix, who is an incredible uh, author, one of my favorite horror authors, has written extensively on the subject. But during the time where Stephen King was living in Maine and writing Pet Cemetery, there was actually the 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 tribe of Indians that he refers to in the book uh, was fighting. Yes. They were fighting with the state of Maine to get their land back. So that was something that was in the news quite frequently around that time. Uh, And I I, I do think it's interesting though, that Stephen King puts like a, a less racist spin on it because it's implied in the book that the white settlers are the ones who poisoned the burial ground and it's their fuck up. They are the ones who bring the evil to this land. So it's a it's a nice, slightly refreshing twist uh, to a lot of the you know Indian burial ground stuff. And particularly refreshing, given that that King doesn't have a sterling uh, history with uh, racial relations, especially mm. in his early, especially in his early writing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 
Don't go down that road. from here. Um, one interesting thing about uh, Pet Cemetery that, like the movie version that we should talk about, is that uh, besides the fact that it came out in the same year as the like a prayer <laughs> music video. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. You know, really? <laughs> and I am. But, um, you know, George Romero had the rights to this. Originally. Oh, yes. I forgot about that. Yeah. And what um, a different movie it, it would be. Then in 1988, there was a, a WGA strike, the, the Writers Guild of America. And Paramount was sort of like, well, we we have nothing on the slate for 1989. Like, what are we going to do? And they had this, this King script. Uh, sort of kicking around and they were like fuck it let's make this you know it, it hadn't gone through before but they were like let's move forward with it and then king met with uh mary lambert and signed off on her this movie might not exist were it not were it not for that and that's that's sort of an interesting fact oh yeah it would be such a different film but i i am so so glad that mary lambert got it and man what a fucking year for mary lambert 1989 <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, she, yeah, she really crushed it. it. And then also on top of that, they did test screenings of this thing, and the studio was like, um, "Some of the elements are too tame." And one of those elements was the fact that uh, Zelda was not grotesque enough. And it's Zelda, like, the is so truly. I mean, this film is not nice to disabled people. Like, I just am imagining some no. shitbag shit executive with a guitar, like make her more fucked up. Like Jesus Christ. Yeah. She needs to be sweatier. Ugh. You know, she oh, she looks like a, a clam or something. Like the interior of a clam, like very moist and, and gross. But Oh boy, okay, um, you can you can, it, pump, you can pump the grip brace on that description, Scott. Yeah, I was gonna say you can describe <laughs> Zelda's moist a few more times and say it a little bit closer to the mic. All right, uh, hit me with the sound. Yeah, I was gonna say I think we still have two or three people that are still listening at this point. We can scare them off and scare them off that way. But Oof. they they did like they they did make the uh, I shouldn't say the Zelda. That's probably that's probably inappropriate. Yeah, but well, they Laura they has did such make a terrible history of using disability as a shorthand for being monsters or 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 being evil. So the, well, this the, film is the not other, great right? about that. Yeah, it's the other right. I mean, it's the they same. Do- yeah. They do, but like I, I do find that element of the story, uh, that to me is the most disturbing element of the story. This, this idea that there's, there's someone you're taking care of, and you can't help them. Like they're going through a thing that you, like you and your power cannot uh, do anything about. You know, and the way it's portrayed in the movie is horrific. But I have always found that element of Pet Cemetery to be way more uh, disturbing than any of the shit with like people coming back to life or a kid getting hit by a truck or any of that. I don't know. I don't know what that I don't know what that says about my anything, my mentality or like where I my outlook on the world or whatever. But like, you know, I I, I actually completely I agree like, with you. I, I yeah. really think uh, and it's always something that's very that stood out to me in the movie because it almost feels like you know you're adapting a Stephen King novel so you're already really scraping to fit as much material in as small amount of time as possible because there's so much there it it is very interesting to me that they spend so much time on what is essentially the the wife 
Rachel, I think her name is Rachel, backstory, which the wife herself barely gets any fucking screen time in the movie and in page time, I guess, in the novel. It's such a th- it's a thing that's so focused on when you could go into Judd's backstory. There's all these other things that are going on. And part of me wonders if they, they did that to put a monster in this movie because there's so much real life horror. There's so much reality. There's so many things that can actually happen. Uh, and part of me wonders if they're like, all right, well, we got to put monster in this we have to give some sort of over-the-top horror element to this it it could it could very well be or or that could be the representation of the evil where pascal is the representation of the good right they're talking to different people of course but it is you know still both of the adult characters being influenced in some way by the supernatural surrounding the pet cemetery or the burial ground beyond the pet cemetery. You know, I, I can see there being a balance aspect to that, but, but you're right. You could, uh, you could see a world in which the studio would be like, just focus on, you know, on the, fo- you know, the father character, you focus on, on him. It's, it's his story. And, um, but then again, you know, part of the the reason why the ending is so effective, you know, is because you have to care about Rachel at least a little bit. Um, and I think that the way that they paint her, you know, her trauma as a child uh, on top of just how fucking assholey her parents are. Her parents are the biggest dicks in the world. Oh, my God. Uh, so fucked up. In, in the movie, they get like, you know, just a couple of they're, they're the typical in-laws, right? Where they just hate hate their son-in-law. They hate, hate the person who married their kid. Um, except they take it to like the nth degree here. Like, And I'll always remember one of the lasting images from the movie for me is when they get in get into a fight when the grandfather and the, and the father, Lewis, gets into a fight at Gage's uh, oh, funeral yeah. and knocks over the casket and you see the little fucking hand like oh. flap up when the, you know, just a little bit, the lifeless hand. And it's not just that image. It is how dale midkiff the actor plays it right afterwards where he it like that breaks him he goes from anger instantly to just the most broken you know person that you've ever seen in your life and that little thing really kind of helps you understand why he would you know go over the edge and and uh you know dig his kid up and try to bury him in the stony you know soil past the deadfall well that's the other big theme of pet cemetery and something that really sticks out for me because it's all there's so much in this story about the things that we don't talk about you know the things mm-hmm. that we try to bury in our own families you know and at the end of the book you know when gage comes mm-hmm. back you know there's so there's all these secrets that he talks about it goes into it obviously more in the book but some uh, a bit in the film and you know there's so much the, part of the horror of what happened with zelda is you know the family doesn't talk about it anymore and that they've, they've tried to bury her so i i think that it would land a little bit harder emotionally if they gave Rachel some more screen time and fleshed her out as a character a little bit more. But it is such an interesting examination of the things that families don't talk about and how that sours the ground, if you will, of your family. Yeah, no, 100%. Speaking of of the uh, the sour aspect of it, you know, that's something else that like really, for whatever reason, stuck with me in both the book and the movie and just the, the describing the soil is sour, right? Describing that area sour and that, that going back to tone, that's what the movie feels like. And I always got to give it up for any, any movie that isn't afraid to just like put you through the ringer. And this movie, <laughs> this movie does. And it, and I like it, being miserable. <laughs> well, I mean, it, if you're not going to do it in a horror movie, when are you going to do it? You know, it's like, 
uh, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm all for happy endings and, you know, I love seeing, you know, our heroes victorious, but every once in a while, you know, this, you know, I believe uh, King said one of the inspirations on, on this was also the uh, monkey's paw tale. You know, you, you have to have a little bit of that twist of the knife every once in a while. And in both the movie and the, the book are certainly that. Well, that's what makes uh, Mary Lambert's uh, direct directing decisions very interesting in this film because there's there's so many moments where the the idyllic nature of the scene is like dialed up to ten, and that's almost the moment when you feel the most dread. It feels sickening, like the the moment before Gage runs out into the road. You know, it's almost like. A, a parody of an idyllic scene you know they're all sitting at a, yeah, it's a kodak commercial table. Right? you know yeah. they're literally flying a little red kite you know he's in his little yellow overalls like it's so over the top and the music is swelling and you even before you see the truck you're almost like oh fuck something bad is gonna happen it's too good yeah and then the truck comes and <laughs> oh god! <laughs> uh, Scott, I'm imagining your face on the guy in the truck right now, but instead of a steering wheel, it's just that button to make that noise. That's great. I mean, I might be crazy, but don't they do like a weird thing where his like eyeballs like pop open like real big or whatever? There's like an extreme close yeah. up or something. Of yeah, his- a little bit. Something like that. I remember he's, he's yeah. like listening to the Ramones and just like, you know, bopping along. Oh, we got to talk about the Ramones, though. Yeah. And how Mary they Lambert like, personally called them up and was like, hey, dudes, can you write a song for my new movie? Quite famously, they wrote the song in like 10 minutes, right? They're like, oh, you yeah, know? Mary, hold on. <laughs> yeah, like they, they, um, yeah, what's your movie about? Pet Cemetery? Do, Didi, do you want to like, be buried there? No? Yeah, they, okay, like, cool, went, I got it. Went, went in a room. <laughs> They went away in a room. It's like a little Mad they- sheet with like a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of blanks to fill in. But for real, like they 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 got their task. They went away in a room for like 10, 15 minutes. This is the story I've always heard. And they came back and they're like, here's what we got. And they fucking played the song. And it's the exact song that plays in the movie. And I mean, that's per- like how perfect is that? That's like that's the Ramones through and through. You like know they that don't Stephen King anything. must have squealed. Oh my oh, god! For sure. Can you imagine? I mean, King and has it's a, a it's a banging song too, man. It's like it, it's like just separate from the movie. It's it's a fucking corker. Oh, it's a jam. It's it's, 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 it, it, it's, it's up there with like their some of their my favorite of their stuff anyway. King likes that shit. He likes um that sort of what would you call it even like uh, rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, but like there's it's but it's but there's like there's an avenue of that kind of rock like at that time that is oh, punk strikes me. No, I don't think Stephen King is is truly punk. Richard Bachman, on the other hand, totally Bachman totally is punk. Bachman is pretty. Do you think punk, Richard Bachman you know? is just Stephen King, but with like a safety pin through his ear? <laughs> Bro, Stephen King brought in ACDC to do maximum overdrive. He's right. not punk. You know, like he's just it's like crotch rock. You know, it's like it's about like a butt rock having a having a having a dick on a table, you know, like and that's that's what? sort of what hold on. Yeah, like, hold the phone. <laughs> yeah, is this like a thing that I don't know about? It's no, like when, you, when a song is I'm really good, you just put your dick on the table. Mallory, I have no idea what he's talking about. What I'm so saying like, yeah, is, that famous thing that all people with dicks do. <laughs> 
He's throwing the dick on the table, <laughs> like not King himself, but uh, the fans that he's worked with. It's it's sort of fuck. I already know what the tweet for this episode is going to look like, but but like yeah, it's sort of it's sort of like antagonistic, masculine. In your face. It, it's not punk. Yeah, it is definitely in your face. The, that dick rock. on the table is in your face. Yeah. Um, how big is this I, table? I won't say. Well, how big is the dick? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, are we are we are we talking Joey Ramone? Or are we talking you know uh, one of the I other Ramones? Well, I was gonna say the guy from ACDC, and then I couldn't uh, conjure his name. Angus. And well, Angus was. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's Angus. But anyway, yeah, I, I would. Uh, what the hell what are we talking? It's about? what I'm calling it, uh, crotch rock, you know, <laughs> and and uh, I think that's that's sort of Stephen Stephen King's uh, taste. He likes old music, and he likes that sort of like, meh, you know, like fuck your parents, you know. I bet I bet King would love the early Beastie Boys. He probably does. I mean, he is a dad. Like, I mean, this is that's his like. Yeah, dads like, love the Beastie Boys. Yeah, that's his shit. Me, me, and my boyfriend have a a fake musician that we make fun of all the time that we invented called Chut Buggins, and we ascribe all of these aspects to him. Like, he drives a Sebring with the top down. He wears yes. acid watch jeans up to yes. his nipples. He has a mullet. Like he thinks he's really Punk badass, but he's actually that. an insurance salesman. <laughs> Early King would love this. Yeah, you know, so he would love Chut Buggins. Buggins. Chut Buggins. <laughs> what does Chut Buggins look like? What is like? Give me. You an know, he's got a canary plays. yellow button-up T-shirt. He's got. I'm thinking of like an IROC Z28 sort oh, of. Oh yeah. He's sort of, you know, he's not, well, what, George Stark drove a uh, a Tornado, right? You know, so it's it's sort of along those lines. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, but, Chuck but Canary, always really thinks he's sticking it to the man. He doesn't realize that he is the man. <laughs> he loves water slides, that guy. Oh, yeah, he loves barbecues. This man has smoked a cigarette on a water slide. Oh, I'm for sure. sure. Oh yeah, this this guy has beer koozies like you wouldn't believe, <laughs> and a hundred and fifty dollar cooler. Yes, <laughs> but the he's thing is, behind on the child support. He, but you know, Chet Buggins loves Stephen King. No, hundred percent. That's yeah. the he's never read any of the books, but but he is he is here for Stephen King. Chuck Buggins, Ch- I know. Stephen I King can writes for the Chuck Buggins of the world. They feel they you, feel understood I'm by. Sorry, Steve. are you saying Chuck Buggins? Chut Buggins. Chut like Buggins C- is a. <laughs> Chut Buggins is a spoonerism of butt chugging. <laughs> okay, okay, so we're talking C H U T. Two T's. Two T's now. <laughs> and it's but it's one line. I'm gonna, both, but it's one line that crosses both of them. I don't know. I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. This is gonna be hard. This is going to be tough on the New York Times crossword puzzle. I don't think you can work that in there. I think it's one T, honestly. I think and it's like Chet Muggins, but with a T. And in his Forest Green Sebring, the vanity plate is Chet with two Ts. Hmm. I, I really hope that Stephen King is a secret listener to this and you see Chud Buggins show up in, in a Stephen King novel. I would truly be the happiest person alive. <laughs> 
Chet Buggins is Bango Skank's cousin. <laughs> oh my god. That all, is a deep, they all go to the same family barbecue on 4th of July. That is a deep cut for our listeners. <laughs> Only half of which will understand that reference, but those of you who do just had your minds blown. I know we're focused wholly on uh, on Mary Lambert's movie, and we will uh, save the remake for another time, but I, I think it would we'd be remiss if we didn't at least touch on her sequel as well. Um, it's oh. not as much of a love fest, uh, but it is a really bizarre. <laughs> it's not as much of a love fest. Like, <laughs> well, uh, oh, no, uh, I mean, maybe, about maybe, a nice maybe. Sunday. And <laughs> yeah. here we have a kick in the balls. Uh, <laughs> You're not gonna like it as much, but, but like, oh, come on, it's not a best. I, um, I get, I get really sad about the sequel, uh, especially when I, because you know when the when the reboot came out last year, every every news venue was looking to to interview Mary Lambert, mm-hmm. and one of the things she talked about, and so I forget where it was, but she talked about how much she wanted the sequel to be centered around Ellie, and she wanted it to be a female centric right story with a female protagonist and they were like nope yeah and that would have been much better than you know getting the kid from t2 you know uh, on on a motorcycle um although i I, brown got dragged into that yeah but it's it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinatingly like missing the mark movie but because there's really these interesting like moments in in that tone it's so it's so schizophrenic. Like it opens with um, a kid, you know, visiting his actress mom on a set and she gets electrocuted uh, on the set and, and dies. And then he has to go and, you know, go off and live with, I don't even remember now, like a family, a family member or whatever. Or, no, it's his dad, right? Anthony Edwards, right? I have um, no idea. I truly don't remember. Yeah, he I goes saw this movie on HBO when they, I was like twelve. I don't. They know. Move, um, but <laughs> poor, I, I when I read, poor Mary Lambert. Somebody hire Mary Lambert. Someone give him a feature to Mary Lambert. Yeah, I'm really curious what like the full story is behind there because th- there are moments where you see that that um, that you know kind of tonal magic show up in in terms of how creepy Clancy Brown. Uh, plays his part because he's like this asshole bully sheriff dude who dies and is buried in the pet cemetery but he comes back and is a little bit more like how they handle the return um of dead people in the um in the the reboot you know where he's still kind of himself but he's also weirdly comical at times and mischievous and playful and 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 evil and just wants to kill everybody it's it's a really interesting hodgepodge uh, that's not a good movie and it's not something I would actually recommend anybody to do, but it's a fascinating mess. And I'm really I've ever since I was a kid, like I knew that there was a difference between the two, the two movies, because I had seen Pet Cemetery. At the moment where you're like, I know what art is and it's not this. Yeah. And, and yeah, something's wrong. Something's off. And, and you know it right away because <laughs> <it's> opening. <laughs> Well, I mean, but you know, something. This is an adult. Well, I mean, no, but you know, it's like you know, it, you know, watching watching it you, that this isn't the same experience. Um, and then when you know, you, I, I, cause I don't think as a this kid, this was I, the moment where Eric became a film critic. It was. It's like something's not right here. Is it? Uh, is it Anthony Edwards? No, I don't think it's Anthony Edwards. On the poster, <laughs> Pet Cemetery Two. Something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong. It's a twelve-year-old Eric Vespi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, as a catch-all, that's truly the slogan for any horror film. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah hey, hey, guys. This isn't a love fest. <laughs> <laughs> so where do y'all uh, place this one in the in the greater pantheon of, of Stephen King adaptations? I'd say it's in the upper echelon. It's not the tippity top for me, but I definitely think it's up there. I think top 10, probably. Yeah, for sure. Capturing the voice of King, um, it is it is one of the best to have done it. Um, and another one, maybe it's just the the whole New England thing, but the other one that nobody talks about that really captures, you know, not just because of the accents, uh, but captures the character work and the voices of the characters is uh, Dolores Claiborne. Um, and it's not as much of a fun movie, and and it's not a horror movie. Yeah, per the se, famously so fun film Pet Cemetery. Yeah, well, I mean, there's still you know there's horror gags and there's yeah you know you know dead people and you know Dolores <laughs> Claiborne's about you know you know some I'm learning a lot about who, you Eric, as a person. D- D- Dolor- well, Dolores Claiborne's about a lady that like kills her her husband because he's abusing their their kid, right? So it's like you know, it, it, it's a little bit it's more of a dr- drama, so people who like Stephen King for the horror side of it don't often go to those those stories. But both both of those in terms of adaptations. Yeah, it's you know, we really feel like doing like Dolores Claiborne screenings at sleepovers. Like the shining or or pet cemetery, or yeah, that, like that. That's for adults. That's for butt chuggins. <laughs> it's chat buggins. Chat buggins. I'm sorry. <laughs> butt chuggins is what he looks at when he's looking in the mirror. Chat buggins is officially the That's name, his... uh, and this is this is uh, this is a, a Kingcast exclusive. Uh, <laughs> Chet Buggins is officially the name of the trucker that hit. Oh my God. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. I'm so sorry that I poisoned your podcast with Chet Buggins. Uh, It's fine. It's one of those weird couple things that me and my partner have that I've now released into the world. I think that uh, you've actually done us a, a solid here, <laughs> and and yeah, I'm we sure can refer uh, Chuck, back to this later. I'm Chuck sure Chuck Buggins is going to make appearances later on in the uh, future yeah. episodes. Absolutely, I think Chuck Buggins is, uh, in fact, our first mascot on Gamecast. <laughs> Honestly, Scott, I really hope that you're Chuck Buggins for Halloween. Oh God, I would love to be Chuck Buggins. I'm going to get me some overalls, oh uh, a piece of straw to put in my mouth. Uh, I'm going to have to start dipping, you know, but I I think I can pull this off. And you got to get a stepson to ignore. Right. Yes. And a a sister-in-law I don't want to get near. (laughs) We've all met Chuck Buggins at a barbecue in like 1989. And we're all a little bit Chuck Buggins on the inside, too. There's a little little Chuck in every one of us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't want to bring this up because y'all are having a really fun time with it, and I'm not trying to be a, a Debbie Downer, but my father was killed by a man named Chubb. <laughs> Did he run him over with a Sebring? Yes, and it's not funny. <laughs> this is the M- Mallory. You you have just recorded the messiest episode. Of the show. I'm so sorry <laughs> that we have done yet. I'm so um, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. it's fine. I brought all these like uh, lofty. Oh, you brought notes. the spirit of. Well, no, I also you brought, brought the Chuck of, <laughs> Yeah, you brought the spirit of Chuck Buggins right into this thing. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You know, this is a very somber and serious story. 
about a kid getting hit by a truck. <laughs> Guys, I gotta go feed my cats. Uh, all right. All right, let's wrap it up. Eric, you got anything else for us? Uh, no. Uh, I yeah, think we, we've covered covered quite a bit. Um, I do have some opinions on the reboot, which we will, I'm sure, cover some That's its some own episode. episode. We're going to um, have to deal with that later. But, uh, but they'll, yeah. They'll have, to, they'll have some pretty big shoes to fill following up this one. So, uh, yeah. Is, is there anything else you want to talk about, Mallory? Or you got... Uh, no, I that's 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 all, that's all. Uh, well, we keep passing we keep passing it to everybody Mallory. else to say, okay, it's done. <laughs> this episode's over. I gotta Are go feed sure? my fucking cats, guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, go feed your cats, and we'll wrap up this episode of the Kingcast. All, all right, we're sorry, everyone. Thank I'm you not. so much for having me on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've released Chet Bugs into the world. I feel like he's like a like it's like the ring. I've released him to you. I'm so sorry. Yeah, he's going to climb out of everybody's iPhones now uh, the, when they finish this episode. The chaotic energy on the show. If, is if you want to hear more scholar, scholarly uh, uh, thoughts about books and horror and, uh, and Chet Buggins, you can listen to my podcast, Reading Glasses, where yes, me and my plug. friend Bria Grant talk about books every week. Wow, you're just grabbing that grabbing that by the horns, right? The grabbing, part that, where we're... grabbing that by the bugs. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fuck. (laughs) Yes, thank you, everyone. We're sorry. (laughs) And that was our episode with Mallory O'Meara on Pet Cemetery, which gave us all the gift of Chut Buggins. Yes, it did. And I believe Chut Buggins, uh, if I have my druthers, is going to pop up in, in future episodes. Yeah, I think we should. I think we should continue to explore the 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 legend of Chet Buggins, and I hope that I hope that people were willing to come on that journey with us because the last ten fifteen minutes of that episode were pretty pretty uh, rambunctious. Uh, yeah, I mean it's a good time, man. I think people need a good time these days, and if they don't, then you know they're in a very nice place. Yeah, we will make sure you have a good time. Aggressive, God damn it! And Chet Buggins cannot be contained, and don't you, you dare try. Uh, so next week is going to be interesting because we are going from one of King's most beloved titles to one of his not so beloved titles. In fact, I would go so far as to say next week we are tackling my least favorite Stephen King book. Uh, and that is the Tommy knockers, the Tommy knockers. Oddly, I have seen a few people requesting this episode. I think they are requesting it because they know how it's going to turn out. I think they know that we're not going to be super complimentary of it and are sort of bloodthirsty. And we're uh we're going to bring a little bit of that to you. And we've we've lined up a guest for this who well the guest brought this to us. And this was one of the first people we booked on the show. He requested this title and he had a very good reason for requesting this title. Turns out that our guest is friends with somebody who was in the production. And in fact, uh, our guest was able to track down some exclusive photos from the set of the Tommyknockers, which uh, really have to be seen to be believed. Uh, it's um, And you will gonna- see them. <laughs> oh, yeah. you will. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we, we've gotten permission to run them, so you will be able to actually see a lot of these somewhat innocuous and then uh, somewhat questionable <laughs> photos <laughs> from the set of the Tommy knockers. 
Yeah, it's it's very funny. Um, yet another in a long line of KingCast exclusives of of questionable news value. But I think the day that we roll out that episode, we'll probably be threading those those photos on on Twitter. If you don't already follow us on Twitter, by the way, we can be found at at KingCast19. Um, so there is a uh, a visual component to next week's episode, along with uh, the audio component. We we're, we're covering all our bases here. We're, we're a multimedia show, an empire in the making. I don't oh, think. I, well, I just want to say I don't think I hate Tommy Knockers as much as you do the book. I, I don't love it, but I don't think it's my least fave. I think that's. I think that's got to be Dreamcatcher. Oh. I don't know. They're neck and neck. And we talk a lot about that on, on the show. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I have reasons for n- not liking Tommy knockers and I go into it in the episode. So I'll save it for that. But, um, uh, I do want to uh, say that our guest, uh, is, is very well spoken on it. And of course it's not Andy Dick. And speaking of Andy Dick, uh, I believe yes. it is a very sad day for us. Cause, uh, I think we are retiring the Andy Dick, uh, joke. Yes, we are. Uh, yeah, we are with with extreme prejudice. Uh, it was brought to our <laughs> attention recently that uh, Andy Dick has been credibly accused of some very heinous behavior. Uh, we sort of picked Andy Dick's name out of a hat when coming up with a running gag for like the worst possible guest you could come up with on the show. And uh, well, what Andy Dick has been accused of is no laughing matter. And we do not want to appear as though we are making light of that. But now that we know it, rest in peace, Andy Dick. You uh, you will never appear on this show and, uh, you know, fuck off. <laughs> well said. Well said. Okay, now I think that the only thing left to do is to plug the Patreon a little bit. Uh, we've had so many uh, people who've listened to the show immediately sign up for our Patreon, uh, which is such a, I don't know, it, uh, it makes me swell with happiness and pride. And thank you guys so much. And uh, if for those who maybe don't know, we did launch a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the KingCast. Uh, and we are offering uh, bonus episodes, uh, some that will be exclusive to the Patreon, uh, some that will be uh, early access uh, episodes for the main feed. Uh, and there's going to be writing. There's a bunch of stuff that we're giving you guys over there. I want to I want to tease some of the interviews we got coming up for it. Because we let off the Patreon with uh, a trio of episodes, a commentary, an early access episode, and an interview. But none of our guests on any of those shows were like big name people. You know, they're they're friends of ours or colleagues, you know, uh, general badasses, but not necessarily celebrities. And just in the past week, we locked in a couple of really amazing guests that will be going to the Patreon first. And um, both of them... I'm I'm picking my words carefully. Both of them have starred in more than one Stephen King production and are coming on to talk to us about their work in the on-screen world of Stephen King. Right. I think I I think I I think I threaded that needle. I don't think I gave anything. You got it. You got it. You aced it. Ten out of ten. Nailed it. (laughs) Um, But they um, will be. They they are names that people are going to be fucking hyped about and. uh, we're recording with them this week and are very excited to speak to both of them. We have some really cool shit planned over there, and I'm really encouraged to see that uh, the people that have signed up for our Patreon are using it as we intended. They're interacting with it. They're asking us questions. We're responding to them. They're using the the commentaries appropriately, as far as I know. 
we're we're fucking hyped about it. You know, we we would love to make this our jobs, and we're one step closer to doing that. So thank you to everyone that signed up. It's it's been awesome to see the response. So if you want to join everybody else over there, that's patreon.com slash the kingcast. And then we'll see you next week for the Tommy Knockers. See you then, guys. <laughs> <laughs>